Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Uh, today we're chatting with Alan Williams from Understanding Ag about adaptive grazing management and that sort of stuff. But before we get into it, Alan, would you mind to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about how you got into grazing management? You bet. So again, Alan Williams, uh, I am a sixth generation family farmer and rancher. Uh, my family farm's been in the family since 1840. And uh, that was in South Carolina. I grew up in South Carolina. I presently farm and ranch in the states of Mississippi and Alabama, uh, actually independently of my family. So uh, spent 15 years in academia. So I was a researcher, a professor, but left academia in 2000, went back into full-time farming and ranching and consulting. And so I'm a partner in Understanding Ag and the Soil Health Academy. And uh, we have the distinct pleasure and privilege of having been able to consult with thousands of farmers and ranchers across North America and 34 other countries uh, to date. So uh, we've been able to work in every conceivable environment. Uh, So we've learned a lot, learned a lot through the years. Awesome. So to start us off, can you Talk a little bit about what adaptive grazing is and just how it's different than other managed grazing scenarios. Sure, be glad to. Adaptive grazing is a system of grazing that allows us to be fully adjustable and flexible to ever-changing conditions. I mean, let's face it, we're in farming and ranching, we're dealing with nature every day, Uh, nature and biology, and uh, it's never the same. Our expectations may be one thing, but what actually happens can be something entirely different. So the ability to be able to, you know, be be highly flexible or adaptable as we go along is critically important. If we try to be too rigid, then it it it's always going to fail at some point. And what we often tell people is that <clears throat> what adaptive grazing is not is it it is not a formula. It is not a prescription, it is not a recipe. And the moment you try to turn it into that, you are no longer adaptive. You have just become not adaptive in what you're doing. And and we follow what we call the three rules of adaptive stewardship, the rule of compounding, rule of diversity, and rule of disruption. Uh, and, And that's sort of the basics of what we do. Okay. Um, you mentioned three three rules for adaptive grazing. Do you want do you mind to go into those a little more in depth and just explain what they are and what they mean? Sure, be happy to do that. Uh, so the first rule is a rule of compounding, and put very simply, that means that there never are any singular effects. Everything that happens out there, every decision we make, creates a whole series of compounding, cascading effects. And those effects are also never neutral. They're either positive or negative. So the decisions we make and the decisions we fail to make 
are going to create compounding effects. And they're, and like I said, they're either going to be negative or positive. Now, the beautiful thing is, is if we're doing this right, then we can create a whole series of positive compounding effects where each one builds on the other. The second rule is the rule of diversity. And it, it is exactly as it sounds. The greater the diversity, the better everything functions. And this means diversity in the plant species that our, our livestock are able to graze. So the more diversity they have, the more choices in their diet that they have, the healthier they're going to be, the better they're going to be able to balance their diet on a day in, day out basis. And our plants and, and everything surrounding in our ecosystem is healthier. Healthy ecosystems start with very healthy plant diversity. And, but that diversity also extends to beneficial insects. We need diversity in beneficial insects out there. And we need diversity right. in the microbes beneath the soil surface. So the rule of diversity. Then the final rule is the rule of disruption. And within the rule of disruption, we know that nature can be extremely resilient. <clears throat> but to keep nature from stagnating, to keep our pastures or our rangeland from stagnating, oftentimes we've got to change things up. We've got to introduce what we call plan purposeful disruptions. It, think about it like this. Think about an elite athlete. For an elite athlete to perform at a very high level and to continue to perform at that high level, they have to consistently alter their exercise routine to continue to challenge their body and their mind to perform better. If they stick with the same exercise routine day in and day out, they're gonna hit a plateau and then they're gonna start going backwards. Well, nature where our bodies are biology and everything we deal with is biology. So it can plateau as well and stagnate just like our bodies can. So we there are a handful of planned purposeful disruptions that we can utilize to help us in that regard. And they include pulsing of stock density. Never pick a stock density and say, this is the silver bullet and I'm gonna stick with that. Purposefully alter stock density. Alter rest periods in our pastures. So don't always go in and say, well, I'm gonna try to rope my rotations every 40 days or whatever it may be. And I'm gonna be back in every pasture every 40 days, the entire grazing season. Don't do that. That's not adaptive, that's formulaic. Alter rest periods, alter your rotation. If your pastures are A, B, C, D, and E, for instance, and every spring you start in A and go A, B, C, D, and E, and the next year A, B, C, D, and E, don't. Next year start in D. It, you would be amazed at it, it just that, that one change, what that does. And if you tend to hit a certain pasture at a certain time of the year, every single year, like by May 15 or so, I'm on this section of my ranch, that's another purposeful disruption or alteration. Next year, hit it first at a different time of the year. Uh, if you do multi-species like we do, we graze a number of different species, alter species order. 
that that can be another plan disruption. Alter forage height on and off as a plan disruption, and even prescribed burns can be a plan disruption. So, with the, those three rules, and aside, I guess, from the, the adaptivity, what are the benefits of the system, and what are the benefits of using those three rules? Well, the benefits are it allows us to be able to make continuous incremental progress, which we have certainly seen for those that have been doing adaptive grazing even for decades now. Uh, we haven't really seen a threshold. Uh, we are able to realize continuous incremental progress. It allows us to be able to develop tremendous diversity in our pastures on our rangeland, uh, far, far greater than any other grazing methodology out there. And we now know that diversity in plant species, diversity of microbes, beneficial insects, and so forth, uh, manifests itself in a whole host of very positive ways. Uh, it allows us to significantly improve forage biomass production, which if you're a rancher, you know how very important that is. <clears throat> and it allows ultimately for the greatest degree of net profitability. Uh, for those of us that have been doing adaptive grazing, our net profitability is, is significantly better than those who are following other forms of grace. Right. Okay. So when we are implementing new management structures on, on the farmer ranch, it's always important to weigh the pros and cons. So with that in mind, mm -hmm. um, what are some of the cons or what can go wrong with adapt adaptive grazing? Where can people run into issues? Yeah. And so that's a very good question. And First and foremost, where people go wrong is not fully understanding adaptive grazing. In other words, they haven't, they haven't taken the time to educate themselves enough to really understand what it is. Almost always when you see something go wrong with what is being called adaptive grazing and you break it down and you look at what they did and what happened, 99% of the time, they were not being adaptive. They had tried to take something that they heard about adaptive grazing and then turn it into that recipe, that formula, and do things the same way all the time. And you, you simply can't do that. So if, if you want to fail, you know, that's the prescription for failure is to try to turn adaptive grazing into a recipe or a formula, a routine. It, it's got to be something where you're constantly adjusting, you know, based on the conditions, based on goals and objectives, based on your full context. So education is the first step and the most important step uh, if you want to be successful. Uh, secondly, where we often see failures is uh, the lack of understanding about how to move your livestock routinely enough. Uh, the, the key to adaptive grazing is that you know, mm -hmm. you've, you've got to have frequent movement and frequent rest. And the rest on your paddocks or your pastures is really absolutely critical here for ultimate success. And 
it's got to be short duration. Every graze on any one given acre, for instance, must be short duration. If you stay too long, you have made a mistake. And, and the other reason for failure is failure to observe good grazing, especially adaptive grazing, requires keen and constant observation. And if we are observing like we need to on a day in day out basis, it's very rare that you're gonna make a mistake that's going to harm you long-term. That's one of the beautiful things about adaptive grazing is if I do make a mistake because I'm moving them every day and, and even at times, multiple times a day, and I'm observing, I see that mistake immediately. And I only impacted a very small number of acres and I can immediately correct that mistake. So that's the kind of mistake I want to make if I'm going to make mistakes, small, mm. immediately correctable mistakes, rather than mistakes that cost me a whole grazing season or cost me years. Right, for sure. So with all of that in mind, um, what can producers do to make sure they're, they're headed in the right direction? especially because some of these changes can take a little bit of time in, in slower environments like up north where we've got short growing seasons, we might not have the, the speed of growth that you might have farther south with more rain. Uh, so what, what are some things we can do to or track to make sure we're headed in the right direction? Yeah, so first of all, to make sure you're headed in the right direction, I'm gonna reiterate what I said earlier and that's take time to educate yourself and to become fully educated in adaptive grazing. And as a part of that education, I mean, you, you know, obviously you could attend a soil health academy, things like that, but, but other things that I highly encourage you to do would be to go and visit other farmers and ranchers who have been successful with adaptive grazing and see what they're doing on their operations and, and, and take time to ask them questions and to learn from them. But in terms of what you can do on a day in day out basis, first of all, have a plan. You know, you need to, you need to make sure that your, your perimeter fencing is in great shape and you need to really learn the lay of your land. Uh, so when you're moving livestock every day, it's a game changer versus continuous grazing, set stock grazing, or maybe rotating them once every week or two weeks or something like that. What you thought you knew absolutely changes when you start moving them every day. And, and so you got to have a plan on how to effectively move them around your ranch during the active grazing season. Uh, the other thing is water. Do not let water be your limiting factor. For many, many ranchers, way too many ranchers, they allow water to be their limiting factor. And we have found that if you're gonna spend water, uh, water, if you're gonna spend money, excuse me, there are only a handful of things that you really need to be spending money on on a ranch. One is water, another is both permanent and temporary fencing, and the third are your livestock. That's it. That's it. Everything else, quite honestly, is extraneous. Water is an investment. Livestock are an investment. Fencing is an investment. You got to view it that way. 
they will always pay off when you're using adaptive grazing. We can pay for new water infrastructure inside of two years without any problem mm -hmm. at all with adaptive grazing. So make sure you've got adequate water and water is not your limiting factor. Uh, the other thing is learn how to carefully observe and take time every day to observe. Don't be in such a hurry that you, you think you just got to check off all these tasks and you go out there, you quickly build a new paddock, you move your cattle into it, and then you leave. Observe them. Observe every animal as they move into the new paddock. Observe how they're grazing, what they're grazing, and observe how much they're grazing every day. So observation is another key to success. And then make certain that you are observing or keeping note of things like your plant species diversity when you begin and what's happening year in and year out. You know, is your plant species diversity increasing or decreasing? If it's decreasing, you've got to reevaluate what you're doing. And you've got to ask yourself, okay, what's happening here? I'm obviously not doing something right. Uh, so, so you want to see plant species, beneficial insects, all of these things increase. A couple of indicator species that you need to pay attention to to make sure that you're being successful are your insect and bird populations. If insect populations are increasing, bird populations are increasing, and you're seeing additional species of both of those, you're doing something very right. Right. That makes sense. So on that note of diversity, um, pasture composition can have a big impact on what a pasture can handle at what time. For example, we've got lots of bush pasture up here, and that's <laughs> there's a whole different set of rules, it seems like, for bush pasture as opposed to, to tame pasture or what you're looking for. So um, when you're moving, say, from a tame pasture into the bush or, or from your tame pasture into your native grassland or any of that sort of stuff, uh, how does that pasture composition affect your, your management decisions as you're going through it? Well, it affects a lot, you know, quite a bit. Um, it doesn't affect my movement. Mm. You know, I'm still going to move every day and, and when I can multiple times a day. Uh, but it impacts most certainly the size of the paddock, uh, you know, in, in regards to how many total pounds of livestock can I feed on a per acre basis? Right. So you always have to keep that in mind. The other thing that it can affect absolutely is the health and the gain of your, of your livestock. Mm. Uh, when you move into the bush, typically your livestock are going to have a lot more diversity to select from and a lot more forbs to select from. Mm -hmm. And we now know that the plant, group that has the highest array of medicinal and antiparasitic and total phytonutrient characteristics are your forbs and your woody and brushy species. And so when you move into the bush, your livestock have more opportunities for selection to be able to self-medicate, self-deworm. And then when you move back on to tame pasture, where you may have a lot lower diversity and there are all these quote improved, you know, plant species, then, then your livestock can actually no longer have the ability 
to self-medicate and self-deworm. So you have to be very cognizant of that. So ultimately, our goal should be, even on our tame grass pastures, is to graze in such a way as to greatly increase the diversity on those. And that diversity should not just be, say, more grass species, but we should see grasses, legumes, forbs, and yes, even woody species coming into that mix, even on our tame pastures, because that enhanced diversity, again, is going to enhance the health and the gainability and the phytonutrient profile of our livestock. Right. That makes some sense. So a lot of us in, in the peace and in, the, in Western Canada generally have had to push pastures pretty hard this year, harder than we usually would like. So for these overgrazed or damaged pastures, um, is there a, re- a way to rejuvenate them with adaptive grazing? Uh, what sort of things would you recommend when you're thinking about next year for these pastures? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most critical things for building diversity is rest, rest. If you're coming back too soon, you are never going to build diversity. As a matter of fact, you're going to narrow diversity, period. Uh, There's just no getting around that. And so rest is absolutely critical. If you want greater diversity after a graze, particularly a higher density graze, and which, by the way, the higher density grazes are the ones that are going to elicit more response from the latent seed bank mm, right. and, and, and those perennials. But after that, you got to give it a longer rest because perennials and natives take a lot longer to establish initially than an annual. And if you don't give it a longer rest, you're just going to graze it right back out again. So everything you tried to accomplish, you just reversed in the very next graze. Right. The next thing, and this goes along with the longer rest, is if you want to really proliferate greater diversity, you've got to graze more mature. You've got to allow plants to go to seed. If you don't do that, again, you're going to basically narrow back out and, 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 and graze out that diversity that you're trying to build in. Mm. So, so graze plants more mature, let them go to seed at least once a year. Uh, the other thing is that we've got to consider the density or stock density that we're employing there. If we want to really build a lot more diversity, then we're going to have to implement a lot higher stock density with very short duration grazes. So we can't leave them on too long. And this means that you can't do your entire ranch in one year. You know, you're going to have to divide it up. And we recommend Mm -hmm. in quarters, you can basically get across the entire ranch with at least one, what we would term ultra high stock density graze at least once every four years. So if you divide your ranching quarters by the fourth year, you will have been across every acre with at least one ultra high density graze and one long extra long rest period 
so that it allows you to, to start down the path of building that diversity. And in your country, that rest period, uh, quite frankly, needs to be at least 120 to 150 days. Right. That makes sense to me. So with that in mind, um, in your opinion, do pastures or haylands ever hit a point uh, where grazing isn't going to fix the problem <laughs> or where it becomes inefficient to try to fix the problem with grazing? Very good question. And uh, here's what we found that uh, basically, no, we, we can resolve about any problem with grazing. Uh, the, again, the right grazing and the right density, the right rest, the right observations. Uh, frankly, we, we have experienced uh, practically every situation that you can imagine in every climate that you can imagine. And we have yet to find a situation, something that was so bad, you know, so damaged or destroyed that we could not fix it with grazing. Sometimes that grazing mm -hmm. to start maybe bale grazing to get right. a good start uh, and to apply some carbon to the soil and a lot of fertility and hoof action and biology. Sometimes that start may be uh, where we go in and we do an initial burn and then follow that burn and that regrowth with adaptive grazing. Right. So there, there's a whole host of different things that we can do here. Uh, and the other thing that we do is in areas that have been significantly damaged, either through prior overgrazing or through cropping, tillage, things like that, um, we can still find some biological hotspots. Mm -hmm. And we purposefully look for biological hotspots. We've been successful working in the desert in identifying biological hotspots, an area where something is growing, right? And yeah. then focusing, concentrating our cattle there initially and growing that out. We find that when you've got areas that are really degraded, if you'll look for the biological hotspots and start there first, don't start at the worst place first, because you'll be very disappointed and very aggravated. Start with the biological hotspots, we call those low hanging fruits, and grow that biology out from there. That, that's what we find actually happens. We call it the biological ripple effect. It's like throwing a pebble in a pond, you know, you, you get ripples, and those ripples are small and concentrated around where the pebble entered the pond initially, entered the water, but those ripples keep growing out and out and out until they reach the banks of the pond. Mm -hmm. Well, biology grows out the same way that those ripples do. So if we, that's why we call it the biological ripple effect. That makes sense. Um, to shift gears just a little bit, I know you've got some experience with grass-fed beef, and that's kind of what you've been doing on your operation. Um, mm -hmm. So are there things that you consider when you're feeding grass-fed animals this way, when you're, which pastures they go into and what those pastures look like? Most certainly. Uh, you know, during the finishing phase, obviously, we're focusing on putting on back fat and intramuscular fat, or that marbling. 
and, mm -hmm. and getting that final degree of finish on them. So they need to get the very best bite. I call it the ice cream. You know, they, they, they got to get that ice cream bite. Uh, so if I were grazing cows, cows and calves, things like that, typically I'm going to let them take up to 50% of what's there before I move them on to the next paddock. But with finishers, I do not want them taking 50% because they're forced to take too many bites on the same plant. Uh, with our mm -hmm. finishers, we typically only let them take the top 20 to 25% before we move them on. So they truly are getting the very best bite of everything as they move forward. The other thing that we have found is that the greater the diversity, the better their gain, the better their health, and most importantly, the better the flavor of the end product. You have a much more robust, complex flavor when you have animals that are eating a much more highly diverse array of plants during that finishing phase. And we're heavily involved in research now with Duke University School of Medicine, looking at a, we're, we're doing what's called metabolomic analysis and looking at phytonutrient spectrums in beef and many other product food items. And what we have found is that the phytonutrient array in grass-fed animals that are eating a more diverse diet in the pastures and all, or on the rangeland is far superior to the phytonutrient profile of animals that are eating a very low diversity diet. Uh, right, right. So, so let's say you were finishing, you were trying to finish some animals on wheat pasture versus finishing them on, on rangeland that has 50, 100 or more different plant species. The phytonutrient profile is not going to be anywhere near as good in the animals that are being finished on wheat pasture. So it makes a significant difference. So in other words, beef is not beef is not beef in terms of nutrition. We have actually found in analyzing beef, depending on the way that it was finished, as much as an 85% difference in nutrient profile. That's quite significant. Yes, it oh. is. And if somebody is interested in, in looking at some of the results of this research, you said it was with Duke University? Is, yes. Do they have fact sheets or any information that's available to the public we could look up? Well, we do have uh, some of that information on our website at understandingag.com. Uh, we actually have a handful of webinars that are archived, and we have several articles under our resources tab. And people can go there and they can look up those articles. They're under a tab called From Our Experts. Um, so we have a whole array of articles. And as I said, we've got Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, who is leading this research at Duke University. We have an archive webinar that Dr. Van Vliet did for us. Uh, we also have some archive webinars from Sarah Keough. Sarah is a, uh, is a uh, high-level nutritionist, and she also has some of this information. And the research is ongoing. So we'll be continuing mm -hmm. to uh, make public, you know, results from the research as we have them. Excellent. Excellent. I'll be putting some of those links down in the description of the podcast so people can find it.
So to kind of carry on with with a slightly broader uh, brush, I suppose, um, what do you think are the keys to success when uh, grazing adaptively, but also in the in the wider beef cattle industry? Yeah, so the first key to success, and everybody's going to get tired of me saying this, but it's education. Uh, you know, you cannot implement what you do not know. That's, that's really the bottom line. And, you know, just like with regenerative agriculture, we have found that, you know, a lot of people have thoughts about it and think they understand it, but they really don't. Uh, so do take the time to educate yourself and make sure that that education is from the hands of people that are actually doing this. That's really critical. Uh, frankly, you're, you're not going to get well-educated. And, and I'm saying this as a former university professor, okay? But you are not going to get the kind of education you need in regenerative agriculture and adaptive grazing from any university. They, there's just no university out there in the U.S. and Canada right now that really has a firm handle on this, mm -hmm. to, be, to be quite frank. And, you know, so get your education, education from people who are actively doing this and have demonstrated success in this. You'll be far, far better ahead. Uh, secondly, you need to, uh, again, have a plan for your infrastructure, necessary infrastructure, you know, your permanent fencing, temporary fencing, and water. That, that all is really, really critical. So don't overlook that. The third is you need to clearly evaluate the genetics of your livestock. Do your livestock genetics really fit a grazing operation or do they not? Uh, so you need to carefully evaluate the genetics of your livestock and make sure that you're selecting for animals that are well adapted to your region well adapted to the type of management that you're implementing and are excellent foragers and able to perform well on forage alone without supplementation. Mm -hmm. This is all just absolutely core to being successful in the cattle business, period, period. Uh, the other thing is longevity. You've got to build longevity. If you, if you have a breeding herd or flock of any kind, if, if you're a cow-calf operation, if you have sheep and you're breeding sheep or whatever it may be, longevity is the number one trait to profitability. The number one. When you examine all economic parameters, not a one of them even comes close to longevity. The greater the longevity, the more money you're going to make, the better able they are to pay off that initial investment in that cow, that you, that pig, whatever the case may be. So you've got to build in longevity. That, that's just, you know, super important. Then you also have to consider epigenetic factors. And this is something that not a lot of people pay attention to, but they should be. Uh, epigenetics, and I'll quickly define it. Epigenetics is the influence of environmental factors on the degree of gene expression in an individual. Mm. Therefore, Everything that we do with our livestock can either positively or negatively affect their epigenetic profile. 
and epigenetics are also transgenerational. So the decisions you make and the things that you do are going to either positively or negatively impact the future generations of your livestock. If you're propping up your livestock too much, supplementing them too much, using too many chemicals, so on and so forth, you are going to negatively epigenetically impact your cattle and they're going to become more and more, each generation is going to become more and more dependent on all of those external inputs and cost. And you're going to wonder why your cow herd is costing you so much. Uh, you know, if you want to build a low input, low cost, highly functioning herd, you must build in longevity, adaptability, and positive epigenetics. If you do that, you're going to be profitable. And then finally, you've got to look at, you know, your markets. Uh, we always tell people work to be profitable no matter how you market. But why give up additional profitability if it's available to you? So take a look at the markets that are around you and the developing markets and the things that you have an opportunity to participate in, whether it be grass-fed beef, uh, non-GMO, grain-finished beef, you know, any regenerative beef, any of those types of things. Those markets are expanding rapidly and continuing to develop and will continue to develop into the future. And so those are things that producers definitely need to be considering. That makes sense. And on that note, um, where do you see the beef cattle industry going in the next 25 years? Where do you see us 25 years from now? 25 years from now, it's going to look very, very different than it does today. Uh, you know, let, mm -hmm. we just have to realize and recognize what's going on in the consumer population, you know, farmers and ranchers in North America, particularly, now make up less than 2% of the entire population. We are definitely the minority and will continue to be the minority by far, by far. So the end users of our products are going to really be the people that have the say in how we farm, how we ranch, and we've got to face up to that. We can't stick our heads in the sand and mm -hmm. ignore that or think that that's going away. It's not. So the environmental pressures, the ecosystem pressures, the climate pressures, the animal welfare pressures are not going to diminish. They're going to grow. So we need to place ourselves in a position where we can be successful in spite of those pressures, where we can say that we're making positive environmental and climate and ecosystem impacts with our cattle, not negative, where we can say that we're making positive impacts on the human health population, not negative impacts with our end product, where we can say that, you know, our livestock are not produce, producing a methane issue. They're not producing a carbon issue. As a matter of fact, our livestock are the solution to those issues. And, and where we can say, as I mentioned earlier, that our food products are incredibly phytonutrient rich. And, and this is a real opportunity in the future. The research that we're doing right now is an absolute game changer. The, the nutritional panel that's on the back of most food products right now 
is a farce. I mean, I'll call a spade a spade. It's an absolute joke. And it actually leads people to make very bad nutritional decisions because you can make even a terrible food look good just through listing nothing but crude protein, saturated fat, and sugars, right? I mean, I can make any food product appear good and appear nutritious, but they're not. Within the phytonutrient profile, we're looking at more than 2,000 different nutritional spectra that are important to human health. And once this information becomes more readily available to the general public, they're gonna be better equipped, better informed to make their food purchase decisions. And I'll be very honest with you, the, this is something that the really big companies cannot do. Uh, they, they just can't because they are trapped in their own paradigms. And this is something where individual ranchers and farmers now get some power put back into their hands because we can control individually our phytonutrient profile in our foods by the principles and practices that we implement. And we have the ability to be able to now advertise that or shortly, we will have the ability to be able to advertise that to our customer base. That immediately gives us a leg up on any of the other you know, major food companies that are out there. And the only way they can compete is mm -hmm. if they decide that they're going to participate with farmers and ranchers that are doing this. And they're gonna to have to pay more for those products. Now, are there some major food companies that are already looking at this? Yes, there are. You know, so there's going to be two divergent ways that we can participate in this. One is through doing our own marketing, and the other is through partnering with a food company or a branded program that is going to move towards selling food this way, selling food by the phytonutrient richness rather than that very uh, vague nutritional panel that we now see on the back of food products. Awesome. All right. I think that's all of the questions I had. Is there anything you think we've missed or that you'd like to mention? Well, um, I would just like to let everybody know that, you know, we have a lot of resource materials available to you free of charge on our website. So you can go to understandingag.com and we're constantly adding new articles, new archived webinars, new videos, those types of things. Uh, we also have a lot of information on, on schools where you can educate yourself on a very hands-on basis. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, through the Soil Health Academy. So you can go to soilhealthacademy.org, O-R-G, and learn about upcoming schools. Uh, so both understandingag.com and soilhealthacademy.org have a lot of really rich resource materials that you need to take advantage of. Uh, the other thing that we've been doing is releasing new online curriculum that allows you to mm. be able to start that learning process. So we released uh, at the beginning of this year, Regen Ag 101. Uh, so they can go to either of those websites and, and access Regen Ag 101. And in early 2022, we're going to be releasing an advanced adaptive grazing online curriculum. And then later in 2022, an advanced 
cropping and cover cropping curriculum. Cool. For anybody interested, I will be putting all those links down in the description of the podcast. But yeah, I think that's all I've got. So thank you very, very much for, for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Well, you are very, very well. Glad to have had the opportunity. Thank you. Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening.